I'm actually going to begin my talk this evening at the same place that Steve started last night because I think it's such a valuable teaching for us, the story of the Buddha's enlightenment, and just fill in some of the details that I find interesting about that, that happening, that event. Many of you probably know this story quite well, how the Buddha, before his enlightenment, was actually a prince and lived a life of great luxury, had many palaces, uh, fine food, women, wine, song, the whole shebang. Anything that was available in his time, he had access to. So he knew the world of sensual pleasures very well. But at some point in his life, he realized that that wasn't enough, that that wasn't a reliable source of happiness in, to be found in those sensual pleasures and set off on his quest for enlightenment. And at first he went to the teachers of his day to find what they were teaching, which was the jhanas. The Buddha did not invent this practice of concentration samadhi, developing the jhanas. It was around uh, at, during the time of his life. And he went to one teacher and went all through the system of jhanas that that teacher taught and excelled in them, realized it wasn't enough went to another teacher who had even more refined teachings on the jhanas, went through all of those to the highest and most subtle levels of absorption. This teacher was so impressed by the Buddha-to-be that he asked him to be his co-teacher, said, come join me and teach with me. He realized what, a, what an amazing person uh, Gautama was. But the Buddha realized that that wasn't it either, that it wasn't a reliable source of happiness and went off and began his years of austerity practices. And when he talked about doing austerity practices, he was serious. This was no kidding about kind of practice. Whatever one could do to mortify the body, he did. Because the belief was, if one mortified the body enough, the soul, the spirit, the Atman, as they called it, would go free. So there was really this sense of diminishing the body for that end. And so one of the extreme austerities he took, uh, undertook was basically starvation. It, it ended up where he was eating a grain of rice a week. I don't know what the point of that is, but a grain of rice a week. <laughs> and became incredibly starved and thin. And this is what he says about that time of his practice. Whatever priests or contemplatives in the past have felt painful, racking, piercing feelings due to their striving, this is the utmost. None have been greater than this. Whatever priests or contemplatives in the future will feel this. Whatever priests or contemplatives in the present are feeling painful, racking, piercing feelings due to their striving, this is the utmost. None is greater than this. But with this racking practice of austerities, I haven't attained any superior human state, any distinction in knowledge or vision worthy of the noble ones. Could there be another way? This is a huge turning point. And it goes to show you the power and the importance of doubt or of questioning. You know, we don't just go on blindly with a practice that's not working. If, there's, if it's really that painful, a little light should go on. Maybe there's another way to relate to this. Maybe there's another path to awakening. And so, but what's interesting is what the Buddha 
recollected at that time. What he remembered was a time when he was, and I think it's about seven or nine years old, quite young, you know, somewhere preteen, where he was sitting in the shade of a rose apple tree in his father's orchard, as Steve said, his father was doing this ritual plowing, and he was just watching. He had no part in the ceremony. As he sat there, it says, quite, this is from the text, this is what the Buddha said, quite withdrawn from sensuality, withdrawn from, un, withdrawn from unskillful mental states, I entered and remained in the first jhana, rapture and pleasure, born from withdrawal, accompanied by direct, uh, vitaka and vichara, directed thought and evaluation. Could this be the path to awakening? Then following on that memory came the realization, this is the path, that is the path to awakening. I thought, so why am I afraid of that pleasure which has nothing to do with sensuality, nothing to do with unskillful mental states? I thought, I am no longer afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensuality. But it is not easy to achieve that pleasure with a body so extremely emaciated. Suppose I were to take some solid food, some rice and porridge. So again, this huge turning point away from that extreme struggle, striving, effort, um, starvation of the body and all forms of other torturings of the body to this state of mind that he experienced quite spontaneously as a young boy. So, and I think what's interesting about this, this reflection or this experience of the Buddha is what he recalled, what he went back to, wasn't his practice of the jhanas, which I'm sure had all kinds of bliss associated with them, just by their very nature. But that wasn't where he went to. He didn't say, what about that? Is that the way? He went back to this experience he had under the rose apple tree. What was it, do you think, was in that experience that drew him or that seemed so important to him? So just imagine if you were that young boy under the rose apple tree, cool of a tree, a summer's day. What are the qualities? And, and he had, obviously, he was an unusual boy and he could fall into this absorption. So the mind was somewhat serene. Just imagine those qualities. This sense of unhurriedness, of contentment, of relaxation, of ease. There wasn't any agenda. He had no goal. Just really feel into what you might imagine those qualities were that he experienced that allowed his mind to ripen into absorption. Beautiful but simple qualities of mind. That's what the Buddha saw was important. That's what drew his attention from this place of being racked by pain, as he said, the most piercing struggle and pain that anyone could ever experience. He was drawn back to that state of mind. This is very important, I think. And so he realized that he needed to try a different approach. It says in the end of that passage, what if I were to take some food? So at this time, he'd been practicing with five other renunciates who were uh, joining with him in all these austerities. But the Buddha was almost always foremost. He was considered their leader. And he goes on and says, Now the five monks had been attending on me, thinking, if Gautama, our contemplative, achieves some higher state, he will tell us. 
But when they saw me taking some solid food, some rice and porridge, they were disgusted and left me, thinking, Gautama the Contemplative is living luxuriously. He has abandoned his exertion and is backsliding into indulgence. Now here's the guy, he looks like a skeleton. He's taken some milk rice. These are the extremes of, of what their practice was. And so they left him. But the Buddha knew he was onto something. He took sustenance, he strengthened the body, and he opened into that great awakening that happened under the Bodhi tree, where this whole process unfolded for him of seeing his past lives and arising and passing and karma and dependent origination and discovered the teaching, the truth, the Four Noble Truths and awakened in that night. When he became awakened, he wanted to share it with someone. He actually looked around for his old jhana teachers through his omniscient mind that he had opened to during that night of awakening through his liberation and saw that they had died. So then he thought of the five other renunciates who had left him in disgust, and he traveled to meet them. It took him some time to get there. They were away, away. But when they saw him coming, they kind of sneered and looked away in disgust. Oh, here's God. Look at him. You know, he's been eating. He's fat. You know, he's probably 100 pounds or something by this stage. But as he approached, they saw his face and how radiant he was. And they realized that something had happened and they couldn't turn away. So they prepared a seat and he gave them his first teaching on the Four Noble Truths. And one of them became awakened that very day with that teaching. So this story is incredibly important for us. Obviously the Buddha awakening, but the, the, the means of his awakening, what happened in his awakening is a lesson for us in this day because what he discovered is the middle way the middle way between um, not mortification, not ascetic practices, not these extremes, but also not the life of indulgence that he'd experienced as a prince. He knew that wasn't the way either. This middle way and this um, wisdom of discriminating between what are wise, skillful, and wholesome pleasures of the mind and body that actually lead to happiness, lead to liberation, and what are unskillful, unwholesome uh, pleasures that we can get attached to and, and actually lead us into more suffering, more confusion. This distinction became a, a hallmark of his teaching, be, uh, rippled all throughout his teachings, and we're feeling the effects of it today because he began from that day to teach for another 45 years. And of course, we're still reaping the benefits of his teaching and his wisdom to this very day, to the extent that a lot of what he taught is now kind of in the mainstream. The joy of living in the moment. You know, how many books are entitled that now? How, how you know, being in the now, it's become um, a, 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 a not a fad, but, you know, just very recognizable in a mainstream understanding that this is a, a potent thing, to the extent that even our dear friend Calvin of Calvin and Hobbes is onto this secret. So here's Calvin and Hobbes, you know, like Calvin the little boy and Hobbes, his imaginary, supposedly, tiger. Hobbes, uh, Calvin is saying, I suppose the secret to happiness is learning to appreciate the moment. He's climbing up his tree. I, for example, take great pleasure in being right here, right now, doing what we're doing. Hobbes, who's always the voice of wisdom, reason, says, of course, you're supposed to be at school. 
And Calvin says, I couldn't appreciate those moments. For most of us, it's like that. Our source of happiness is very conditional. We need things to be a certain way. What the Buddha taught, what the revolutionary aspect of his teaching is to find a happiness, a pleasure, a, a bliss, a liberation that goes beyond conditions. Of course, the first teaching that the Buddha gave was that of the Four Noble Truths, and I'm sure you're all very familiar with it, the first one being that there is suffering, that being in a body, especially a human body, will involve some suffering. Now, because of this teaching, Buddhism has actually got a rap about being all about suffering. And some people even distort or misunderstand that first noble truth as being life is suffering. The Buddha never said that. He just said there is suffering. And there is suffering for these reasons, but just there is suffering. It's the nature of things. So this is a distortion, but we can still fall into that trap, even if we know that to be the actual truth. Where, and I've heard people say this, if I'm not suffering, I'm not serious. If I'm not suffering, I'm indulging in something. It's kind of lightweight. You know, the nitty-gritty stuff, it's painful. I gotta get in there and kind of grind away at whatever source of dukkha or suffering is out there. It's like, oh, oh, oh. And that's what it's really about. It's kind of like we're on pain patrol. We're always looking for what's wrong. You know, where's the next disaster going to happen? This can be an attitude that we have and think that this is what being a serious spiritual practitioner is about. We really have to remember that the Buddha never talked about suffering without talking about the end of suffering. The Buddha had many names that he gave himself and that other people gave him. One of them was the happy one. He was often described as being radiant, serene. Um, and I was actually reading a little bit in text today and I found that um, in the Abhidhamma, which is this compilation of the Buddha's teachings and kind of really organized in this very meticulous way, it's kind of a Buddhist psychology. They make lots, lots of lists and in the long list of all the different mental qualities that one might experience, they made a special one just for the smile of an arhant. That was such a unique and distinct quality that that expression of joy was given its own name. So it's throughout the teachings, this emphasis on the skillful and appropriate use and cultivation of joy and pleasure and bliss. One uh, scholar, Analayo Bhikkhu, who's written this great book on uh, the Satipatthana, Satipatthana Sutta, the four foundations of mindfulness that's really the basis of our practice, says that the entire scheme of the gradual training, which is the Buddha's teachings, can be envisaged as a progressive refinement of joy. Goes on to say, after his awakening, the Buddha declared himself to be one who lived in happiness. And when the Buddha says that, he doesn't mean chasing the sensual pleasures like he did as a prince. He's talking about another more profound, more reliable source of happiness that he gained through his awakening through this liberation of mind that he experienced. And it was through directly working with the hindrances, with the defilements, with those difficult states of mind that we all experience, his willingness to de deliberately turn to those and transform them and liberate them 
created this stable and lasting happiness for him. A visiting king who uh, was coming to one of the monasteries where there are a number of monks practicing, described the monks as being smiling and cheerful, sincerely joyful and plainly delighting, living at ease and unruffled. And there are many suttas where the Buddha talks about pleasure and joy and happiness associated with these refined states of mind of jhana, concentration, and then the liberation that comes out of those. But he also talked a lot about the joy and happiness of the lay life, of a householder's life. Many people in his day came and asked him questions, and he would talk quite um, clearly about those possibilities. And this in the um, Arama Vibhanga Sutta, uh, someone came, no, this is a different one. This is what the Buddha said. One should not pursue sensual pleasure, which is low, vulgar, coarse, ignoble, unbeneficial. And one should not pursue self-mortification, which is painful, ignoble, and unbeneficial. The middle way discovered by the Tathagata, that's another name, the Buddha, provides, avoids both extremes, giving vision, giving knowledge. It leads to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to Nibbana. One, one should know how to define pleasure, and knowing that, one should pursue pleasure within oneself. I started talking about lay people. This is still on the jhanic pleasures. One should pursue pleasure within oneself. So he's not talking about suffering. He's talking about pursuing pleasure. However, his definition of suffering is cultivating the jhanas. Here, bhikkhus, quite secluded from sensual pleasures, that's the pleasures, the sort of outward pleasures of the senses, of the five sense doors, secluded from unwholesome states, a bhikkhu enters upon and abides in the first jhana, the bliss, the second jhana, the third jhana, the fourth jhana. This is called the bliss of renunciation, the bliss of seclusion, the bliss of peace, the bliss of enlightenment. I say of this kind of pleasure that it should be pursued, that it should be developed, that it should be cultivated, that it should not be feared. So that, and th this kind of teaching is throughout the suttas, talking about the, the bliss and the release that comes from developing concentration. And always, as it says here, this is in the service of coming to awakening. It's not just for the bliss itself but the bliss is a central part of that unfolding and what invites us to keep deepening and deepening in the practice. So on this retreat, as I said at the beginning, we, didn't, we don't advertise it as a jhana retreat. We don't know if that's what you'll experience, but all of us can taste a little bit the pleasure, the delight in the secluded mind, in the concentrated mind, in the mind that even for a moment touches that place of stillness, of letting go of the wanting mind, of letting go of restlessness or aversion. We can all know that and begin to get a taste of what the Buddha was talking about. Unfortunately, to cultivate these sublime states of mind, for most of us, takes a lot of work, takes time, takes cultivation. And so they're not that accessible. 
And as lay practitioners who aren't devoting our lives to this practice, that's very much where we find ourselves. Whereas the delights of the five senses, they're all around. You know, here on retreat, they're limited a little, but out in the world, endless. They're thrust upon us. And so this is our challenge or dilemma that I want to explore a little bit this evening is, what is the wise or skillful use of pleasure for us as lay people? The Buddha did talk about, as I started to say a little bit before, that, that there are skillful or wholesome pleasures that lay people can cultivate that aren't these ones that are so rarefied, the jhanic states, the states of deep absorption. He talked about finding beauty in nature. And there are many beautiful passages in the suttas of descriptions of nature and how it inspired someone or moved someone or even enabled someone to come to awakening. There's a whole uh, book called the, there's actually two books, the Taragata and the Terigata. They're the books of verses of the elder monks and the elder nuns and scattered throughout them, you can find these beautiful descriptions of nature from these practitioners at the time of the Buddha. And we can know that too. You know, nature is, a, appreciating nature is a great way to start to explore. I'm sure it's not new for you. This really wholesome opening to pleasure, this skillful use of pleasure. And we need to look at what is it about our relationship to the beauty of nature that makes it skillful, that makes it something that's actually supportive for our practice. Well, a big thing is we don't try to own nature or control it or change it. We just appreciate it as it is, a sunset, the clouds, the trees, the deer. You know, if we try to grab one of the deer and stuff it in our car and take it home, I, you know, that's not the way to enjoy nature. We just need to let it be as it is. So really learning from that about what can be a skillful relationship to this beauty that we can experience. And here at Spirit Rock, we're surrounded by it learn from that. That can be something that can help us or teach us as we um, look at other areas that we might experience pleasure in, that, that kind of relationship. One of these verses from the Theragatha is, they're all very short, it's simple. The color of the blue dark clouds glistening, cooled with the waters of clear flowing streams, covered with ladybugs. These rocky crags refresh me. And you can just get a sense of the stillness of the mind that was open to that scene and how it brought them to some new level of letting go and deepening in their practice. So most of the Buddha's teachings were directed towards renunciates, towards his monks and nuns who were celibate lived very simply, only wore ro- r- rags for robes, took one meal a day, had no very few possessions. We've got to remember this as we hear the Buddha's teachings on the skillful use of pleasure, that he's talking about practitioners who are practicing intensively with the um, in- aspiration to awakening. So remembering this as we hear some of the things that he says about sensual pleasures, because 
as you know, they can be a distraction from the one-pointedness of our concentration meditation or any practice. We can get seduced by the pleasures of the senses. But he did talk about how, as lay people, there are many sources of skillful use of pleasure, skillful development of happiness and joy in that life. And he made lots of lists. One of them is the happiness of our possessions, just enjoying what we have. The happiness of enjoyment, just literally that, that when something is is pleasant and enjoyable for us, that is something, as long as this thing itself isn't harming others or you know, created out of some source of greed, that that's something we can actually appreciate. The happiness of freedom from debt and the happiness of blamelessness, living a life of ethical values so that we're not harming ourselves and others. In one sutta, a lay person came to the Buddha and asked him about this very question, about how as lay people do we skillfully use pleasure. And he said, Venerable Sir, we are lay people who enjoy sensual pleasures, dwelling at home in a bed crowded with children, enjoying fine sandalwood, wearing garlands, scents, unguents, accepting gold and silver. What will lead to our welfare and happiness, both in the present life and in the future life as well? Well, the Buddha doesn't say, oh, give all that up, that's terrible, you shouldn't enjoy anything and go and be a monk and renounce your family and your possessions and your livelihood. He recognizes that for some people, the lay life is what they will be living. And so he very wisely answered that there are four things that will lead to happiness here and now. Skillfulness in one's livelihood, so that we take care of the way that we earn a living, and it's done with a view to sila and generosity, being careful with one's savings. So we're very, you know, not necessarily frugal, but just careful with the money, the, 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 the possessions that you have, having wise and generous friends, and living in a balanced way, not extravagant and not miserly. So very appropriate advice for a lay person. But then the Buddha doesn't ever leave it at that. He says, that's what will help you be happy now, but if you really want to be happy, happy now and in the future, and in the future means when these conditions change, these are what you need to cultivate. Faith, moral discipline or sila, generosity and wisdom. So these are things that can bring us happiness that's less conditioned, less reliant on having possessions and livelihood we can cultivate these qualities. And wisdom, of course, he was referring to clear seeing, seeing the nature of impermanence to the extent that leads to insight and to awakening. So the Buddha gave lots of advice like this. This is just one example. There are many lists of things he said lay people should cultivate and could enjoy and, and would lead to happiness. But us here in the West, we are all partaking in a huge experiment. I don't know if you know that. Where somewhere in the middle between lay people, as they were traditionally viewed in, in Buddhist countries, and renunciates. Here on retreat, we live the life of a renunciate. We take vows of celibacy. We take not vows of poverty, but we live very simply. We take what's offered. We don't have a lot of entertainment. 
we have a sincere motivation to wake up. Traditionally in Buddhist countries, lay people didn't practice meditation so much. They just practiced, practiced dana and sila, generosity and ethical conduct. It's really rare for such huge numbers of people to be very sincere about meditation practice and waking up. This is a radical new experiment. And we are the subjects of this experiment. We will see what comes of this. So we're treading new ground, charting, we're walking in uncharted territory here. And each of us needs to really look at this question about what does it mean to be a lay renunciate or a lay dedicated practitioner. To explore the teachings about renunciation and the skillful use of pleasure and really question and see what leads to my true happiness. Not to be seduced by the, 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 the cords of pleasure that are out there everywhere. I mean, we live lives of luxury here today that are unimagined at the time of the Buddha. We all live like princes and princesses compared to what he's used to. How do we skillfully relate to that, given our interest in waking up? This is a challenge for all of us, and I'm not going to, there's no answer to that. We all need to explore this question, this deep question about what does it mean to be sincere about waking up, given the life that we live as lay people? It's a huge question. It's a huge question. And what can happen for many of us as we deepen in practice, as we get more wise and compassionate, more retreats, more understanding, we can actually get a little complacent. We get into a comfort zone where the huge amounts of suffering that we were driven by, that drove us into practice in the early days, and that sense of being on fire for practice, for waking up. I remember Myra first retreat was like, you know, the old enlightenment or bust thing, sticker on the forehead. I was going to go for it. And it just seemed so possible and doable. And, you know, it's true that being on a spiritual path is one humbling experience after another, where you realize the more you know, the more there is to it. And so I've, you know, been through that process myself. But this complacency can come in where we've kind of cooled out a bit. We've, we've dealt with some of these issues that were so difficult for us. We've purified a lot of the defilements in our minds and our hearts. But what can happen? We can end up with one of my teachers calls high-class samsara. It's very pleasant, but it's still samsara. It's still being caught in this wheel of becoming, in this wheel of confusion and attachment. We really need to be rec recognize that because high-class samsara relies on the conditions being okay. You know, we can go with a little bit the flow here and there. You know, we're kind of good with that. But when push comes to shove, what, what are our resources? This is what practice is about, to really practice for the hard times when it's not so hard, to keep being willing to practice. And we, this is challenging for us because we do live in a culture of indulgence. You know, this, this theme of looking for pleasure is all around us. 
you just have to open the wine and food section of the newspaper and it, it can get a bit nauseating after a while as people go on and on about descriptions of wine or restaurants they visited or a perfect this or that. And there were this whole flurry of books recently, you know, Under the Tuscan Sun, A Year in Provence, and whatever. And you read them and they're kind of interesting. I mean, I love being in Italy, but after a while it's like, is this what life is about? The quest for the, the right tile for the bathroom or the perfect <laughs> olive? And it just became for me a little nauseating after a while to just see the limitation of that as an end goal in life. We can get seduced by that too. I mean, I'm not separating myself from this because it's so much available for us. As serious practitioners, once the, the, the possibility has been revealed to us and the Buddha revealed it, that's what he did, we need to keep that flame alive to really use our um, practice and the skillful use of pleasure to actually be onward leading, not to just get stuck in high-class samsara. So what does this mean for us here practicing concentration? A skillful use of pleasure. How do we work with that? Of course, for most of you, and we've been talking about this, the questions and the interviews, if you're used to vipassana, you kind of know what the teachings are, the, the technique is. The hindrances, work with them. You know, really engage with them. And if it's pleasant, just notice it. Don't get attached. Let it's impermanent. It's going to go. And of course, there's, that's wise. This is how we do our vipassana practice. But as many of you have noticed in interviews, the rules change a little bit in concentration practice. Where the hindrances, we say not now. We literally see if we can just not engage with them. And of course, at times we can't, and as I counsel a number of people today, then it is more skillful to do vipassana, to work with them. But the basic instruction in concentration practice is not now. Come back to the chosen object, whatever that might be. And as far as pleasant experiences, especially within our meditation, yes, what is that? How, do, how, do, how did that come about? What were we doing? Skillfully, of course, as soon as we grasp or hold on to or expect, you know, it's like trying to grasp air or water. It's going to slip away. But to skillfully engage and cultivate these beautiful or pleasant feelings, even the simplest ones, very helpful in our concentration practice. And to this end, we need to also work with the skillfully with the pleasant experiences we have outside the meditation. So again, like I talked about, the beauty of nature. Let that inspire you to experience the quiet mind, the radiant mind, the serene mind, the open, spacious mind. It's a teacher. Can we learn from the peach cobbler with whipped cream? You know, wasn't that delightful? How can we appreciate that without holding on to it, without needing more, without even needing to get the recipe? So it's just what it is. So we really look to how can we learn from these beautiful qualities, not reject them, force them away, think that they're, you know, we shouldn't pay attention to them. So we recognize and actually delight in and encourage these beautiful qualities 
when we notice them in our practice. Look at this list that I gave out on the first night of all of the qualities that support concentration. They're all beautiful qualities of mind and heart. Things like faith, energy, wisdom, rapture, um, investigation, joy, happiness. This is the terrain that we can work in and cultivate deliberately when we notice these kinds of experiences arising. This is what we do. This is how we work skillfully with these beautiful qualities. Steve spoke about the four wise efforts. The two in the positive, on the wholesome side, are to arouse wholesome or positive states of mind that haven't yet arisen, and for ones that have arisen, to cultivate them, to recognize them, to acknowledge them, to let them flower. This is so important that we actually allow ourselves this pleasure and this joy. And that even the smallest part, even the littlest glimmer, that we allow it to suffuse the body, to awaken it, to enliven it. And again, skillful use is not we grasp onto it, not we go, oh yes, now this is it, more, more. I can so clearly remember my first direct experience of sukha in cultivating the jhanic factors. It's just in thinking about it, it was so blissful. My, my description of it, it was like being a piece of floating seaweed. You know those long seaweed things that they're anchored a little, but they're just so loose. They're very floating. Being a piece of seaweed like that, floating in a sea of warm honey. And I just went, yes. You know, more sukha. What? May sukha arise. How do I get sukha? You know, and I go to my teacher saying, what I think I really need is more sukha. You know, that's what's out of balance for me. And it took some time before I recognized I couldn't, you know, it wasn't a big job that I could just, you know, mainline sukha. It had to be a skillful relationship and development, but as a quality, incredibly important, because you may notice in one of the lists that I'm actually going to talk about later in the retreat, the proximate cause for happiness is sukha. I mean, sorry, for concentration is sukha or happiness. The other ones preceding happiness, on the list that are somewhat sequential, mindfulness and tranquility, these beautiful qualities of presence and serenity, we need to see that. Do anywhere on this list do you see striving? Do you see gritting teeth? Do you see, you know, wanting in that sense of, you know, again, enlightenment or bust? It's not there. So what are the conditions that create sukha or serenity, this contented expression of mind and heart. One teacher, Tanasaro Bhikkhu, uh, takes his, his techniques from the text and he says, what you look for is whatever is disturbing your meditation and you let go of that. Now that sounds very simple, doesn't it? But it's never that easy. In the beginning, this is quite a gross practice. It's the hindrances, it's pain. And let go of it, well, that would be nice, but you know, so, it, but we do work with it as skillfully as we can and see that the letting go, the not now, the reduction of the hindrances and our involvement with them is what will allow these states of mind to grow. And it be, this practice becomes more and more subtle as we deepen this letting go of whatever it is as a disturbance, this, this kind of, as the mind becomes more tranquil, this willingness to notice. And it's not 
necessarily the disturbance of something as strong as a hindrance. It can be any form of willing or attachment or striving. And it's, when I say disturbance, it's not as though we're trying to create the perfect conditions here. It's not as though that's going to do it. You know, if, if all the beeper watches were turned off and if the temperature was just right and if the food I'd eaten was just right, that that would do it. That's not the kind of disturbance I'm talking about. If we get too engaged in trying to fix the outer, again, crazy making. Here's what Ajahn Chah said, who's a Thai forest meditation master, unfortunately died a number of years ago. He says about his practice, when I was younger, I looked for peace in the wrong way. I'd sit to practice samadhi and my mind wouldn't settle down. It ran around wildly and no matter how I tried to bring it back, it wouldn't return. If it did come back, it wouldn't stay. Sound familiar? What to do? Should I stop breathing? I used to try that. I'd hold my breath to try and force my mind to stop moving, but it would still go. I'd hold my breath longer, but the only thing that could come of holding the breath longer and longer was that I would eventually die. It was similar when I felt my meditation was disturbed by sounds. I filled my ears with wax. I really stuffed them tight so that I wouldn't hear anything. It seemed like a good thing. No more outside sounds to bother me. But I started thinking about it. If not hearing or seeing anything is, the, is part of being awakened, then the deaf should all be enlightened. The blind should all be enlightened. The completely deaf should be arhants. <laughs> so it's not about making the external conditions a certain way. We need to make it appealing to come back to our chosen object, in this case the breath. We will never develop concentration by sheer will alone. It's impossible. We need to cultivate this love of simplicity, this love of just surrendering to the breath, to seclusion, to retreating. I learned a lot about this from another teacher I haven't practiced with directly, but listened a lot to a lot of his talks, Ajahn Brahm, Ajahn Brahma Wangso. It's actually an English monk who now lives in Australia who teaches jhana practice. That's the main thing he teaches. And he talked about his early days of practice as a young monk and how he was on fire for practice. Again, the enlightenment or bust, he was definitely there with that motto. And he would huff and puff and, and force, and he was just, there was no way he was not going to do it. And he said he would always get to a certain point, like pushing the boulder uphill, and at some point everything would crash and fall apart and he would just be down at the bottom, exhausted, just everything chaotic. After a number, I don't know how many times, of having that experience, he recognized, just like the Buddha did, that something different had to happen. He needed to try a different way. And when he looked at his experience, he recognized that basically what his relationship to the breath was, was that it was boring. And the only way he could get his mind to stay with the breath was to force it there. And so that's what he'd been doing. And he saw it just wouldn't work. It's not possible to get to absorption through sheer will. And so he saw he had to create a different relationship to the breath. And he started playing with what he called suba sanya. Suba means beautiful. Sanya means perception. It's one of the five aggregates. It's, the Buddha talks about it a lot. And perception is so important here because 
it's one of the five aggregates, so it's the way we commonly relate to the world and, and see the world, but it's conditioned. We don't realize how much choice we have in how we're perceiving things, and that we can actually shift our perception of things skillfully. We can shift it unskillfully too. We can you know, grasp onto things and make them you know, what we have to have. But in meditation, it's possible to actually shift our perception to view, in this case, the breath, instead of being boring, as beautiful. And this is what Ajahn Brahm did, and it made all the difference. He starts talking about the beautiful breath. And this beautiful breath comes from being willing to surrender to it, being willing to become absorbed in the present moment to the extent that all you need to to know or experience is the breath. And the breath becomes the beloved, basically. The breath becomes it, the beautiful breath. So this, I found this very inspiring, very helpful. And I started using this, playing with perception about the breath when I was doing my concentration practice. Now, normally when people come into interviews and talk about imagery with the breath, in Vipassana I tend to discourage it because it's adding onto just the bare reality, the bare experience of breath. But in concentration practice, I actually think it can be very skillful. So I would play with things like the breath is silk, the breath is a wave, you know, that very, when a wave is coming onto basically the flat shore, so it's just, the breath is a breeze in and out. Whatever might work for you to really invite you back to the breath. I even think things like counting and noting are changing our perception of the breath because they're getting us engaged in the breath. These are all helpful supporting activities. To ask the question, how can I make the breath more pleasant, more comfortable? To invite connection with the breath. What would that be to breathe a little more deeply, a little more into my shoulders? little more fully, a little more softly. Don't be afraid of controlling the breath. It's not the big people often, oh, I shouldn't, it's okay. The Buddha actually talked about using the breath skillfully to explore all of these ranges of experiences like in these lists and to allow that to deepen into states of absorption. I do consider, however, all of these things I've just talked about, what I call transitional objects. We use them skillfully, and when their work is done, when we've engaged with the breath in this, in this deep and absorbed way, we can let them go. We simply want to end up with just breath, the barest knowing of breath, the barest experience of breath. But whatever we need to get us to that point, we use and we use skillfully. Now again, we can't take up any of these and go, this is going to be it, I've got to do it, this is how it should be. All of these have to be done skillfully with wisdom. This was helpful for me when I did a short period of casino practice. Again, I'm I'm not, there's a whole range of practices of doing the casino, and I, I didn't have a teacher, so I was just playing around with it a little. But casinas are one of the traditional objects of meditation, of concentration, traditionally colored discs, and you make them. 
You can make them out of flowers or out of earth or out of you know, a bowl of water or a candle. But you can also envisit in just imagine them. And I tried to make one. I didn't have I had a blue zafu. It wasn't doing it. So you can imagine them, but it's harder. I mean, because you just imagine blue. It's very difficult. So as I tried to do this practice, I realized I wasn't getting anywhere. And I remembered Ajahn Brahm and Subhasanya, beautiful perception. So I thought, what's the most beautiful color blue that I know? And for me, it's the limpid blue of a tropical sea. You know, that color that's just, it just delights. Or even a swimming pool when the light is playing through it. And so I just sat imagining that blue. And I, I don't know if I, I certainly wouldn't think that I mastered Cassina, but I got very um, pity and rapture just arose out of that just delighting in blue. I'm not recommending you try this, but just to give an example of how to work with this. So this skillful use of delight of pleasure, of inviting these beautiful qualities of mind and heart, not holding on to them. We're so conditioned to think that trying harder is going to be what does it. That if I just, mm, mm, and it can be so subtle. I saw this on myself on a retreat where, again, doing breath meditation, very subtly being with the breath, thinking I was doing fine. I heard all the teachings about striving. I've talked to so many people about them. But at some point, I just had to acknowledge that there was this very subtle agenda that I was being with the breath to get somewhere. And once I noticed that, it was like this pack of cards or you know, that just all dominoes that just fell. I felt the tension throughout the body, this gaining mind that was only being present to get somewhere else, to have an experience, to deepen. And I just had to completely let go of that because it was in the way, actually, of my deepening in the practice. I thought I learned a huge lesson from that. I went on another retreat with this very amazing meditation jhana master, Pa'ok Sayadaw. His level of jhana is extremely deep and profound, and most Westerners have enormous trouble even getting to the beginning of it. I did a month of practice with him. You have to report every day. And there's another teacher who was on that retreat said to me later, he said, yep, what I did every day was think, how can I package up this day of practice to make it kind of look like it was okay, you know, for my teacher? And this was someone who's very experienced. But that's kind of what you get into striving. And I was being with the breath in this most subtle way and, you know, getting more and more refined and minute and minute. And now that I think of it energetically, I kind of think of, I was kind of like going like this around. But in the moment, I wasn't recognizing it at all. I was just thinking I was being delicate and refined, and I'd end my meditation, I'd go on walk, and I was very free. But at some point, again, I just recognized the striving that was in, in trying to be so delicate and so precise in the breath, because I thought that that was what would do it. Again, it wasn't the breath for the breath's sake. It was trying to get somewhere. And I basically had to completely let go of that meditation. I stopped it completely. I opened up. I got big. I got spacious. I started counting again. And it was really like just letting go, but I had to do it. it, it, it was a, and it was just another humbling experience of how much we can try to hold on and control and contrive. One teacher that I worked with was very helpful, uh, Christina Feldman. 
really emphasized this not struggling. She would say, especially in the beginning of our concentration practice, sit for as long as the mind is collected. As soon as it stops being at all collected, get up. 20 minutes, 10 minutes, go do something else. Take a few, just a few minutes break, but then come back. Here in the context of you know, a group retreat, it's not so easy to do that, but inwardly you can. If you really find you're struggling, break the meditation. Shake it off. Look outside. One of the best pieces of advice she gave me was every now and then, just sit and stare out the window. Just sit and stare at the trees moving. Or outside, just be in nature and let your gaze be unfocused. Try, you know, don't let the mind just wander. You know, there's usually some stillness, but just be very relaxed. This, this kind of attitude is really helpful. And to really begin to learn to trust ourselves and trust the practice. Trust this vitaka and vichara, the simplicity of aiming and sustaining again and again and again. And to realize that it's okay not It's okay to enjoy practice. It's okay to have these feelings of pleasure. I want to end with a a teaching that I've learned a lot from. I go back to it again and again. From um, Ajahn Mun. It's actually his Again, it's an enlightenment poem or song. It's called Ballad of Liberation from the Khandas. And it's talking in the third person, but he's talking about himself. Once there was a man who loved himself and feared distress. He wanted happiness beyond the reach of danger, so he wandered endlessly. Wherever people said that happiness was found, he longed to go. But wandering took a long, long time. He was the sort of man who loved himself and really dreaded death. He really wanted release from aging and mortality. Then one day he came to know the truth. Abandoning the cause of suffering and compounded things, he found a cave of wonders of endless happiness. And that was his own body. Cave of wonders of endless happiness. As he gazed throughout the cave of wonders, His suffering was destroyed, his fears appeased. He gazed and gazed around the mountainside, experiencing unbounded peace. When the heart sees its own decayings, it is released from darkness. It loses its taste for them and abandons its doubts. It stops searching for things within and without. Its attachments all fall away. It leaves its loves and hates, whatever weighs it down. It can end its desires, its sorrows all vanish, together with the weighty cares that make it moan. As if a shower of rain were to refresh the heart, the cool heart is realized by the heart itself. The heart is cool, for it has no need to wander around looking at people. Knowing the mind source in the present, it's unshakable and unconcerned with any good and evils, for they must pass away with all other impediments. Perfectly still, the mind source neither thinks nor interprets. It stays only with its own affairs, no expectations. 
No need to be entangled or troubled. No need to keep up its guard. Sitting or lying down, one thinks at the source mind. Released. So let's just take a moment to let the words settle. You don't need to change posture. Just let the words settle. Come back into silence and into quiet. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.